Peloton's best offer of the season is here. Get up to $300 off accessories when you purchase a Peloton bike, Bike Plus, or Tread. Choose from a variety of accessories, like our cycling shoes, a heart rate monitor, non-slip grip dumbbells, and more. If you've been looking for a sign to join Peloton, this offer gives you everything you need to get going. This limited-time offer ends November 28th. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access membership separate. Offer starts November 14th and ends November 28th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. Welcome once again to High Desert Radio, the voice of the Jewish Federation of New Mexico. And now here's your host, Zachary Benjamin. Uh, thank you once again. Welcome to our latest episode of High Desert Radio. Uh, we're pleased to have back with us uh, Benham Ben Taleblu from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Benham, w- welcome back. Uh, thanks so much for being back with us. Thank you for having me. Always good to be back with you. Uh, for those who have listened to our podcast in the past, Benham is a second-time guest. He is the uh, Iran analyst for the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, he gave a wonderful kind of two-year report card on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, otherwise known as the Iran Deal. Uh, we call it the JCPOA for short. And uh, that was just a few months ago. And in those uh, couple few months, there have been some significant developments geopolitically with regard to the deal, most significantly that uh, the Trump administration has made the decision uh, to pull the U.S. out of the deal to some extent. But there are so many layers to this decision, the ripple effect, the uh, repercussions, both positive and maybe negative for the U.S., for Israel, for intra-international uh, uh, relations in the um, Middle East region. So I just kind of want to dive into all this and uh, just start with kind of the most basic question. So as you can tell from uh, my intro here, there's a little bit of confusion, I think, among the general public regarding what the quote-unquote U.S. pullout actually means. We know that there will be a snapback of sanctions on Iran. Um, but let's kind of start with an overview of how the decision to leave the JCPOA was reached, whether this is actually an exit from the JCPOA or simply what you described in our last conversation as a decertification and a request to renegotiate, um, and then kind of what exactly the action items are for the U.S. uh, Now that that decision has been made, what does the U.S. have to do to fulfill uh, the requirements of the pullout or the decertification? Sure. Well, I mean, it's always great to be back with you guys. And let me just say, I think since we last spoke, I, I got a promotion. So now I'm a research fellow at a FDD. Oh, Mazel so tov. E- thank you. Thank you so much. I get to cover even more of the Iran portfolio, the breadth and depth of the threat. So I think you uh, mentioned that there was a bit of confusion going on about the American pullout. And let, let's just start together by painting the scene uh, to make sure the general public is with us as to what actually has happened. Let me just give you a brief overview. Uh, Iran was found to have an illicit nuclear program in 2002. Um, this, this illicit nuclear program had been going on from the early 1980s. It was resurrected by the Islamic Republic, who inherited uh, the quest for the bomb, essentially, from the late Shah of Iran. Uh, that's when uh, America was, Iran was an American uh, ally and not an American enemy. 
Um, but starting since 2002, we've had escalating rounds of pressure, particularly in 2006, when Iran's nuclear file was referred to the Security Council. There were five UN Security Council resolutions. There was increasing U.S. and EU pressure, designations and sanctions, which built on top of that multilateral international support system. But then really in 2010 to 2013, I would say there was this sanctions incubation period, real sanctions with real teeth, driven by the U.S. Congress, supported by the U.S. Treasury, replicated through most of the Europe. European legislation also grew in this time. Uh, and then in November 2013, uh, there was an interim nuclear deal, the Joint Plan of Action reach, where Iran started to get sanctions relief. In April 20, and, and then the deadline for that deal to be implemented was January 2014. The, the can was kicked down the road several times, timeline extended. Then in April 2015, we got a framework for a final deal. And then in July 2015, we got a allegedly comprehensive, even though it's not comprehensive, deal called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And from starting in July 2015, when we got a UN Security Council resolution basically copy-pasting the nuclear deal and endorsing it, um, we've been dealing with the after effects of this bad deal, legal, political, economic, security, both at home and in the region, banks and businesses. This deal has essentially touched everything geopolitically. It was implemented starting in January 2016 formally. Uh, we now know that Iran didn't disclose the atomic archive revealed by Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, to the IAEA, and, and thus we really technically didn't uh, have to start implementing the deal that early. Uh, it also talks about Iran's ambitions to to actually get a weapon at some point in time, despite a deal committing it to allegedly not want to get weapons. And then because there was a piece of U.S. legislation in place that governed the conditions under which we gave relief to Iran, we essentially gave nuclear sanctions relief. I use this term, you know, in air, air quotes, nuclear sanctions, because U.S. law doesn't define what is and is not a nuclear sanction. But the Obama administration's negotiating team basically took the strongest penalties that existed in U.S. statute in, in various in four different pieces of U.S. legislation, defined them as nuclear sanctions and then provided waivers and relief to those sanctions. So when the Trump administration came into office in January 2017, they were already kind of plugged into this existing system of certification requirements, sanctions waiver requirements. Uh, I believe the certification requirements occurred every 90 days. So every 90 days, the president would have to certify that Iran is complying with the deal pursuant to you know these criteria established in U.S. law. And of course, uh, every 120 and 180 days, based on the waivers found in U.S. law, the president would have to waive these biting U.S. sanctions to keep the U.S. a party to this flawed deal. Historically, President Trump, on October 13, 2017, decertified the deal. Since then, to the best of my knowledge, there has not been another certification decision. So the decertification of the deal from October 13, 2017 still holds. What happened in January, and all the meanwhile, by the way, President Trump is increasing non-nuclear sanctions on Iran, growing the number of designations on persons, entities, and networks supportive of Iran's non-nuclear threats, be it missile, military, human rights violations and terrorism, of course, and illicit finance and money laundering. But then when we get to January 2018, President Trump is tired of this waiver process, much like he tired of the uh, certification, decertification process. Not only is it politically costly, but most importantly, it continues to grant relief to the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism. It, it keeps a, a deal that is called comprehensive, but is not actually comprehensive in place. And many believe that it hindered overall U.S. policy towards Iran. And, and again, whatever you want to say about the administration enacting U.S. policy strategically and rhetorically, it was hitting all the right notes on Iran. 
so President Trump said that he would not waive those pieces of legislation again starting in January 2018 if the EU and the Europeans did not work with him to fix the deal. Starting in the early January 2018, February 2018, the, Europe, the E3, France, Germany, and Britain worked with American State Department negotiators to get a fix, a quote-unquote fix, to the deal along three vectors, the first vector being missile. Um, they wanted to stop an ICBM. Second vector being military site inspections. They wanted to reaffirm the right the IAEA has to visit military sites. We know they haven't done that. And then, of course, the third vector is sunset clauses, meaning that this nuclear deal needs to be extended. We can't have a uh, ongoing enrichment program in Iran that is not going to be ex- uh, inspected full time. And we don't want the deal to lapse, basically, in 10 years like it does. We want to get a good deal, a comprehensive deal, a verifiable deal, a deal that addresses all of Iran's pathways of nuclear weapons. And um, apparently the fix presented to the president was not good enough. Uh, you know, I consider myself a bit of a missile hawk. I think that the you know Europeans could have given us more and, and, and much faster up front on the missile file. But then on May 8th, 2018, several days in advance of May 12th, which was the waiver deadline, the president fully withdrew the U.S. from the deal. There was a lot of talk that he would partially withdraw, that he would waive some sanctions, suspend some sanctions. Of course, there was another waiver deadline in July that he could have punted to. Uh, but the president, um, again, you know, whatever people may say about tariffs or trade, he lived up to his word and he fully withdrew the U.S. from the deal. And because of that, he stated very clearly that he would be fully reimposing the sanctions that existed before, the quote-unquote nuclear sanctions on Iran. And essentially, we are now in a world created by that decision. And speaking very amorally here, um, there is a 90 to 180-day wind-down period that the Treasury Department quickly uh, established for foreign businesses operating in Iran or companies that transact in Iran, particularly Asian and European banks and businesses, uh, to comply with the penalties found in those existing U.S. statutes. You could kind of call it back to the future, if you will, because Trump is bringing back all those those pieces of legislation from 2010 to 2013 that existed and reinstating the penalties. The question is, Europe is still working to keep the deal. Iran is still working to keep the deal. So are the Russians and Chinese. There's a lot of problems here. We now have a divided Western front confronting Iran. That, that to me, is challenging because that's what Rouhani, again, is looking to do, further divide the West, make sure that America is isolated on Iran. And now we're looking to actually enforce those heavy penalties found in U.S. law. And then there's an enforcement problem because, you know, we're not just enforcing sanctions on Iran. We're looking to enforce it on these European banks and businesses and these foreign companies. And in the press, we've been seeing a deluge of companies withdrawing from Iran, deciding to terminate their business with Iran, shuttering their business with Iran, and saying that absent a waiver to continue their operations, they will not be able to continue operating in Iran or with Iranians. And we're in a bit of a game uh, of chicken with the Iranians. Uh, both America and Iran are racing towards Europe, trying to win over European heads, hearts, and pocketbooks. You know, we're using sanctions, and the Iranians are using centrifuges. And uh, we're back in this world, and we're going to see who blinks first. I think that this administration is clearly signaling their resolve to get some kind of genuine solution to the Iranian nuclear and regional challenge. That's fascinating. So, so it really, it truly is a, a rolling back of the U.S. policy and certain, and, and then essentially U.S. law with regard to 
sanctions on Iran to those 2010 to 2013 levels, which uh, I think trying to, to walk a center line, uh, many on, on in the president's circle of, of supporters were, were, were hoping to see, and, and, and many um, outside of that uh, circle of supporters uh, were looking toward with some trepidation. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Is there any incentive? Um, Iran obviously was engaged in malign activities from day one. We, just, we know there was the testing of ballistic missiles. Uh, we know that there was some leniency, it seems, given to Iran as they became accustomed to a world uh, operating with the JCPOA in place, is there any incentive to them to any extent that they may have been complying uh, to continue to comply with the rollback of their nuclear program, given the fact that uh, a deal with Europe is is still in play? You know, that, that's the million-dollar question. And in fact, if you're looking at sanctions, that's the multi-billion-dollar question, <laughs> uh, as some would say. So, you know, I think what you're basically getting at here is what is Iran's incentive to stay within the boundaries of the deal? If you, you know, to be very crass, if you're dividing up the, the deal between the West and Iran, and, you know, we can leave Russia and China out of this for now, if you're looking to divide up, you know, what does the JCPOA basically require of these parties? It requires the West to suspend, waive, and then ultimately lift sanctions. And it requires Iran to put some selective, limited, time-sensitive caps uh, and freezes on its nuclear program. So you're saying, what is the incentive Iran has to continue with those limited caps? The first is inherently political, and, it, and it's worth bringing this up again because you know we have a lot of sanctions expertise in Washington, a lot of sanctions expertise at FTD. It's an amazing team that I work with. But just looking at Iranian intentions, before looking at, at, at how Washington sees Iranian intentions, is to make sure we don't mirror image uh, and project what we think the Iranians are thinking and letting them speak for themselves. The Iranians like this deal because it does something fundamental for their nuclear program. It diverts attention away from the nuclear program being a weapon program and begins to talk about it and treat it as a civilian program. And you can't put a price tag on that because, as I mentioned earlier, Iran illicitly was uh, developing a nuclear program and Iran illicitly was looking to have a nuclear weapon. Iran was caught. So it's created this narrative of a civilian program ever since 2002. But really, the, the drive that Iran has been going for from 83 to 2002 was, was weapons. And so what Iran gets out of this deal politically is basically a blessing, like coming clean, if you will, simply by sitting there and abiding by the timeline of the deal, which, again, is more restrictive on Washington than Tehran. Tehran gets to take a formally illicit program and make it licit. You can't put a price tag on that. That's the first thing. So that's one incentive Iran has to continue to live within the narrow parameters set by the JCPOA, a.k.a sit there, hang tight, this deal needs to have the negative attention taken off of our program. Let's see if we can do that. That's the first one. The second, of course, is again, now talking about economics and sanctions, is to see if it can leverage European support for the, for the deal. Now, whether that support for the deal is economic, because Europe wants to trade with Iran, or whether that, deal, that, that support for the deal is in terms of security, because Europeans genuinely think it's a good deal, or whether the Europeans actually are proud of the deal. You know, when you look at statements by the EU, they keep talking about how it's a 12-year period, because the EU was negotiating with Iran since 2003. And they are proud of the multinational, multi-administration uh, attempt they had to get a diplomatic resolution to the Iranian nuclear program. So whatever is driving the Europeans here, the Iranians want that to be in play so that the Europeans will, will basically collaborate with Iran, which is the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism, to offset 
American sanctions. That, now, that's exceptionally, uh, that's, a, that's a damning statement, to put, put it politely, to have Europe, which is one of America's largest trading and security partners in the world, to side with the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism over America. So that's, that's the second thing. So that the Europeans would create offsets to American sanctions, that the Europeans would provide Iran the cash and the money that, uh, you know, Iran would be deprived of because of U.S. sanctions, and that the Europeans would insulate their companies and banks and businesses or transact in, non-US, uh, in non-dollar denominated transactions or not touch the U.S. financial system or to create an isolated channel for transactions with Iran, basically to do the blocking legislation plus for Iran and stand up. To America. Now, that's a big gamble on behalf of Iran. And diplomacy uh, by Iran is going to be their their main tool here. That's one of their strong suits. They want to leverage this transatlantic divide that's going on. So that's why that's Iran's main strategy. And that's why I think at least until November 4, when those sanctions that we were talking about earlier will be fully reinstated, Iran wants to see how committed Washington is to enforcing them. And Iran wants to see how committed Europe is to bypassing them. That's why I think, at least until November 4, Iran will largely remain within these boundaries set by the deal. So it seems like we're kind of almost back to that concept of the Persian Bazaar, where there's a, like you said, a bit of a game of chicken um, and uh, um, certainly some gamesmanship at play. Looking uh, at the domestic uh, political impact of the decision, I know that some in the U.S. have expressed some concern that the decision might set in motion this kind of yo-yo effect whereby the next time we have a Democrat in the White House, uh, the decision could be reversed or whatever decision uh, or deal is in place that ultimately would have been um, envisioned by the current administration will, will be reversed and then vice versa after that, depending on geopolitical conditions at the time when a Republican eventually returns to power. Is there any validity to this concern? And if not, what prevents the relationship with Iran from becoming kind of a domestic partisan political pendulum that simply kind of swings back and forth between sanctions and support, uh, depending on whoever resides in the White House. You know, that, that is an amazing point, and I, you put your hand right on the money there. We don't want Iran to become a partisan issue, and I would uh, kind of behoove, your, your, it would behoove your listeners to go back and look at those individual pieces of legislation, and I'll mention them briefly, CISADA, the Comprehensive Iran Sanctions Accountability and Investment Act, which amends the Iran Sanctions Act, um, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012, the Iran Freedom and Counterproliferation Act, and the Iran Threat Reduction Syria Human Rights Act. Look at these pieces of legislation and realize how they pass on an overwhelmingly bipartisan basis. And to realize that the U.S. coercive economic strategy against Iran was until very recent bipartisan. And it's a shame to lose that bipartisanship. And to me, it fundamentally should be more than bipartisan. It should be nonpartisan. You know, objectively... There are metrics that we're looking at here. Iran is a threat. Iran is a threat to its own people. Iran is a threat to a region. Iran is a threat to the United States, to, to uh, Europe, obviously to Israel, Saudi Arabia, American partners in the Middle East. But also Iran is a threat to the international financial system, to the global nonproliferation regime, and to those who care about liberal norms and peaceful means of conflict adjudication. So Iran is a threat in all these different domains. There are some in Washington who sell the threat as a two out of ten. And there are some in Washington who sell the threat out of, as a 10 out of 10. Both are wrong. You know, to put it objectively, Iran is a 6, maybe 7, and, but the problem is it's growing. And it's growing in qualitatively new 
and damning ways for U.S. policy that make U.S. policymakers have to think creatively to offset that threat. So if you're looking to deal with a nuclear file, what should have happened in 2015? And again, I don't think the JCPOA was a good enough deal. But hypothetically, let's say you got a good deal. Or hypothetically, let's pretend Obama believed, former President Obama believed that there was support in the U.S. Congress. That deal should have been a treaty. And, and it's, the world, we are living in a world defined by that fatal flaw made by President Obama. The JCPOA should have been a treaty. There should have been a congressional delegation in the talks. There should have been congressional buy-in. You know, as representatives of the people, they should have had a seat at the table. And for a deal that is supposed to do so much for the U.S.-Iran relationship, I don't know why there wasn't congressional buy-in, likely because there likely was no support. And bypassing it and making an executive agreement creates this pendulum yo-yo effect that you are concerned about. So Pompeo, Secretary Pompeo, when he gave his most recent famous Iran speech at the Heritage Foundation, he said that if we get a deal with Iran, we want to make it a treaty. So I wish this administration and any administration that really wants to pursue a treaty with Iran all the best. I mean, I wish them all the best with my eyes open because it's going to be very difficult to even get a deal with Iran to fix it, to build on it, to add on it, and then, of course, to make it a treaty. But that conceptual understanding that something of this magnitude must be enshrined in U.S. law as a treaty, uh, I think, is correct and needs to be there. And that will prevent the pendulum from swinging left, right, left, right, because it's not a sanctions issue. It's not a partisan issue. It's a this is an objective threat. We're not overselling it. We're not underselling it. And we're using all means of U.S. policy to deal with that threat. That's a very good point. And I think we, I guess we can also look more recently at the Iran Sanctions Act, which, um, of course, is a, a um, uh, was was passed under the auspices of the deal, but yet certainly on a bipartisan basis and, and, and with all parties knowing that there was some possibility or likelihood that uh, that the U.S. would be um, pulling out uh, at some point under, under a, a Trump administration. Pivoting now to Israel, interested in uh, the impact on, uh, on Israel, what the advantages, what the disadvantages are, uh, remembering back to the debate over uh, the JCPOA back in 2015, there was truly uh, universal, I would say, close to universal political support, both from the governing coalition, the Netanyahu coalition, uh, and his opposition for the notion that uh, the Iran deal was a bad deal and certainly a dangerous uh, proposition for Israel. But there were some on the fringes, uh, mostly from the intelligence community, uh, that challenged that, that supported the deal. Uh, so predictably, the announcement that the U.S. would be leaving the deal was celebrated on the Israeli street and certainly in the in the halls of power uh, in Israel. Um, and, and then again, you, you kind of heard from the fringes some of those same dissenting uh, voices expressing some caution. What does Israel stand to gain from this U.S. decision? And is there any downside at all? Sure. So let me let me just say up front and for the record, I, I am nowhere as well versed in Israel's domestic politics and Israel's security politics as I am with respect to Iran. But just being an objective observer in Washington, if that means anything, <laughs> Israel is in a tight spot. To put put it put it frankly, I understand, of course, why members of uh, you know their intelligence or defense community, as you were mentioning, may have wanted the deal because if they have much more shorter time, I mean, it depends on the tasking. I assume if they have shorter time horizons on the threat that they're supposed to be monitoring pursuant to their jobs, maybe they're looking at the regional concerns, maybe they're looking at the Syrian civil war, the Golan Heights, rearming Hezbollah, all this stuff. But to me, if I, if I was 
you know, I wouldn't, you know, put myself in that position. But if I was there, I would be thinking right now, okay, is Iran is dealing with the Iran threat through the Syrian and Lebanese dimension harder or easier when it has, you know, this much more cash on hand? And to me, the answer is it's harder. So I think you want a diplomatic resolution to the Iranian nuclear crisis if you're Israel. You want a diplomatic resolution to the Iranian nuclear crisis if you're an Iranian citizen in Iran. You don't want a war, obviously. You know, and if you want one, obviously, if you're an American policymaker, because you don't want a costly war. Uh, you, d- you don't want uh, some kind of protracted thing that throws the region in- into chaos because there isn't enough chaos in the Middle East already. You, you want to find a way to cushion the blow. And diplomacy, coercive diplomacy, really is the best way to go. But I think the former administration had the bulk of the leverage, and they essentially lost it at the negotiating table. And that is a, that's why the JCPOA remains a negotiated success for Iran. And hence my concerns today that Iran may try to negotiate its way out of an economic tight spot. Uh, Iran was dealt a very poor hand in 2012, 2013, but it played that poor hand brilliantly. And now Iran does have a very poor hand with a diminishing real and American resolve, but how it might try to play between the U.S. and the EU remains to be seen, and that's one concern. So when you have Israel, uh, or, or many in Israel, as you were saying, the power centers you were mentioning, celebrating the deal, it might be, if I'm guessing, part of a cognizance that you can't divorce the Iranian nuclear threat from the regional threat, and that if you're looking to improve Israeli security, you have to be cognizant that these two things are, in fact, linked, that an ascendant Iran on the nuclear file, that an ascendant Iran with cash on hand, that a sanctions for Iran was free to do more and worse things in Syria, Lebanon, with Hamas, with Israel. You know, we're in the holy month of Ramadan now. Uh, the 14th is the last day of Ramadan. The uh, Friday, last Friday of Ramadan, is a holiday invented by Khomeini, uh, the founding father of the Islamic Republic, called Quds Day, where he tries to get global support against Israel. And, and again, Iran will celebrate it with much pomp and circumstance and anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism uh, as ever in Tehran. Um, and these are the things you're concerned about if you're an Israeli policymaker and looking to check all dimensions of the Iran threat, not just the limited nuclear, but missile, military, missile proliferation, arms proliferation. Uh, you, you are concerned about Hezbollah's arsenal as much as you are about Iran's arsenal. And in many ways, they are an extension of Iran's arsenal. They're an extension of Iran's hand. Um, so Israel stands to gain something significant from this U.S. decision, which is a coupling of the nuclear and regional portfolios and an attempt to deal with this Iran policy comprehensively, which hasn't been done so in Washington in about a decade. And the downside, is, of course, is that it's high risk, high reward. You know, if you, if you pursued a strategy in Washington, which Washington did starting in 2006 to go for the low-hanging fruit, to divide every element of the Iran threat and just try to get fixes to each one, you know, you're playing it safe. You're playing it perhaps a little too safe. But then the, the downside of putting them all together, of course, is that it's high risk, high reward. How are you going to do this? And it requires a lot of competence, a lot of attention, a lot of devotion. If you're any kind of Western uh, security planner as to how are you going to check Iran and deal with this complex package at once? Uh, and it, there's also, I think, uh, an impact uh, not only on Israel's uh, leverage uh, with regard to coming to some sort of a solution, hopefully a, dip- hopefully a diplomatic one, uh, to the issue of Iran, uh, Iran's threat to its security, but also uh, an impact on its relation, its its regional relationships. Uh, we know that uh, Iran uh, has a traditional. Um, uh, hostile relationship. 
relationship with uh, the the Sunni Gulf states. Uh, they've challenged uh, the notion that those states, which were carved out uh, from uh, kind of a British colonial uh, jigsaw puzzle, you know, uh, are uh, the, Iran has challenged their their influence and legitimacy in the in the Muslim world, and so that conflict between the Sunni states and Iran has created a convergence of interests between Israel and those Sunni states, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, United Arab Emirates, and some others. So what impact, if any, does the U.S. decision have on recent improvements in relations between Israel and the Sunni states, uh, these gains that ostensibly were made uh, because of the disturbing rise and influence of their common uh, existential threat being Iran? And does it Prove to the Sunnis and Israelis that when united in their aims, they're able to influence uh, other global actors? Or, conversely, does the supposed reduction of the Iranian threat, or at least uh, placing some of that leverage back into the hands of Israel and the Sunnis, take away some of that incentive to move towards uh, normalization? Well, I think this is also a very fascinating regional dynamic, and it's one that's actually not particularly new, meaning it's not limited to the Trump administration, though I think it's significantly grown on the Trump administration, because one of the first things President Trump did with the trip to Riyadh, I think, was to solidify support for those traditional power centers of those traditional American allies in the region, Israel and Saudi Arabia, Israel and the Gulf states, and to kind of put our lot in with them as to how we see the Iran threat. So making a fundamental political and policy divide with how former President Obama and how he saw the Iran threat and how he saw the changing role of U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia and Israel in dealing with the Iran threat. Uh, I'd like to take you back, if I can, to a Atlantic article from the summer of 2010. I think it was a very powerful article written by Jeffrey Goldberg. He got the cover about Israel bombing Iran. I think it was you know June, July, or August 2010 it came out, maybe September even. All attention was on that article because it was about a prospective Israeli-Iranian war the summer of 2010. But there was an article right behind it in the same print edition of The Atlantic, I think by Robert Kaplan about Kissinger. And there's a Kissinger quote in there I'm going to paraphrase for you that I think is particularly telling. It has forecasted this Israeli-Sunni Gulf state convergence against Iran. And Kissinger was saying we have many options against Iran. One of them is like a Sunni... uh, Sunni-Israeli uh, axis. I believe it was Kissinger who said that, or, or Kaplan who said that, kind of channeling Kissinger. But, but either way, the forecasting of that axe, of, of that partnership, the Israelis and the, the Sunni Gulf states led by Saudi Arabia, um, had happened starting at least in 2010 publicly in, in the public domain. So I think that there had been some intelligence cooperation between the two. I think it proves, as you mentioned, that if there is a common threat, you know, this is geopolitics 101, two entities, two parties can put aside some of their differences. The question is, it remains, of course, how much do the uh, Gulf states uh, remain committed to the Palestinians, if at all? And then, of course, for the Israelis is, you know, what, where are we in terms of final status agreements towards a lasting peace? What is the status of Abbas? All, all these different things. But the heightening of the Iran threat, starting with a nuclear deal and starting, in fact, with the negotiations that led to the JPOA, to the interim nuclear deal in 2013, I think that's when you really saw a convergence between, oh, my goodness, these two American, I'm hesitant to use the term pillars of security in the region, but these two significant American partners, stand to lose something, not just lose something politically, but they stand to lose something because Iran is not going to be dealt with comprehensively. It's still going to have a regional threat. Those are the major American partners in the region, and they will bear the brunt of that regional threat, ideologically, and of course, in terms of security, in terms of facts on the ground, boots on the ground. One need only to look to the Golan Heights today 
to understand what Iran and its Shia militias are doing and what intentions they have for Israel. And one need only to look at the ballistic missiles provided to the Houthis in Yemen by the Iranians to understand what Iran is looking to do on the Arabian Peninsula against Riyadh. So it does prove that when there is this foreign threat, two parties can put aside their differences. My guess is if you, in the long term, diminish the Iran threat, then some of those differences may again come to the fore. Uh, it's up to, again, Israeli and Saudi and Israeli and Arab policymakers to kind of move from transactional to transformational, should they decide to do so. It would be very helpful for the Arabs, to, uh, particularly in the Gulf, to take out some of the hate speech in their textbooks, to more publicly embrace Israel. Um, that would, of course, be welcome. But putting my own share on top of this Sunday here, as, as someone of Iranian ancestry, as a, a, a Persian-American who grew up in that multicultural milieu where, you know, my family has Jewish friends, Baha'i friends, Shiite friends, lapsed friends, agnostic atheist friends, that didn't matter before to the Iran of the 50s and 60s and 70s, to the pro-American Iran. And so what happens one day when the Iranian people, which we know are on the street, when, when they get a government that represents their views and their interests? Hopefully at that point in time, Iran and Israel, as Prime Minister Netanyahu had said, could make peace. Because these are two ancient and great civilizations, and they do have much in common, at least culturally. And it would be a shame to only look at that dynamic through the security lens. I think that's a fantastic place to, to probably start to wrap it up. Uh, I think that it um, leaves us on a, on, a, on a hopeful note. And, and truly, in, in all of the discussion and in all of the hand-wringing and, and chest-beating, uh, and certainly in the media and, and, and on the street uh, worldwide, we do forget that it is certainly not a complete impossibility that someday these two contemporary nation states that represent these these two great ancient uh, cultures uh, might come together uh, on their own uh, when conditions uh, are right for that to happen. So, Bethnam Ben Taleblu, uh, your your new title is um, research fellow, senior research fellow with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Is that correct? Uh, research fellow. Research, yeah, fellow. research fellow. Research fellow with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, Mazel tov again on your promotion. Uh, thank you so thank much you, uh, for your expertise and, and for your time. And I have a feeling that this may not uh, be the end of our, our ongoing dialogue. No, and I, I, I certainly hope it's not the end. Please, please be in touch. Do let me know if you visit out here in Washington. And, of course, again, I'd love to do this again. I'm sure Iran will remain in the news, even though we have North Korea coming up next week with the uh, Yes or No Summit <laughs> in Singapore. Um, that, you know, there's a lot going on, and we can get into the regional dimension. I remember you had a sixth and final question about Syria and, and how that will play out. Um, so I'd, I'd love to get into that. But, yes, please do send me the link whenever you have it. I'll pass it on to FTD, make sure they distribute it. And, um, yes, this was really great. This is a good conversation and very useful, both to JNF and, and the American public. Good, good. I appreciate it, and I hope so. And, well, at the very least, we don't live in boring times, so uh, to be continued. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks great. again. That's it for this edition of High Desert Radio. Thanks so much for listening. High Desert Radio is the voice of the Jewish Federation of New Mexico. Remember, in order for us to continue providing quality programs like High Desert Radio and to continue our work in service to Jewish seniors, Holocaust survivors, low-income families, children, young professionals, Israel, and more, the Jewish Federation of New Mexico relies entirely on the generosity of listeners like you. Make your contribution today to jewishnewmexico.org. 
Remember, you can subscribe to this series on iTunes and be sure to visit us at jewishnewmexico.org. Till next time, for High Desert Radio, I'm David Wolf. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.